We're looking this summer at the book of Acts. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts, and we're, we're having uh, 12 Sundays where we're preaching on Acts, so we're obviously not going chapter by chapter. Uh, but we do want to uh, unfold the, the flow of the book to hit the uh, critical points of instruction and transition as we see the emergence of the Christian movement in the world. The book of Acts is about the continuing work, the continuing ministry of Jesus Christ in the world. In the very first book, very first verse of the book of Acts, Luke tells us, he tells the reader, that his first volume, the gospel, was about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up, which clearly indicates that uh, what's following in the sequel in the book of Acts is about what Jesus is continuing to do, how Jesus is continuing to do his work in the world. But clearly, as we get into the book of Acts, we understand that the ministry of Jesus continues as a delegated ministry, uh, a work, a mission uh, entrusted to the apostles for the gathering of the people of God into a new community that we call the church. This morning I want to uh, move us to an important theme in the book of Acts, which is the emergence of opposition to the Christian movement. Vince has uh, introduced us to the formation of the church by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He's given us the outline of the book of Acts where the, the Christian movement, the missionary movement moves from Judea from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and from there to the ends of the earth. Today we're still in, we're still in Jerusalem, uh, but something appears, something happens uh, that, that we recognize as opposition. And so we'll be thinking about that in the sermon this morning. Before uh, I move right into that, and perhaps uh, by way of uh, laying a, a, a foundation to consider it, I'd like to call your attention to some striking parallels between the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and the, the beginning of his delegated apostolic continuing ministry. First, and, and most obviously, they both begin in the power of the Holy Spirit manifested in uh, visible signs from heaven. So when Jesus is baptized by John at the Jordan, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, descends in bodily form like a dove and rests upon Jesus. When uh, Peter takes the gospel to the household of Cornelius, the uh, Gentile Roman centurion, Peter uh, says this to Cornelius and his household. He says, you know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. Sometimes we get to Acts and we get to the day of Pentecost and we say, well, now the Spirit is at work, as if the Spirit's sort of been waiting in the wings for his, his moment. But when Jesus begins his ministry, the Spirit descends, and it is in the power of the Holy Spirit that our Lord Jesus does his ministry. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that time and time again. At the Lord's baptism, of course, John the Baptist anticipates another baptism 
that Jesus himself would administer, a baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And last Sunday, uh, Vince recalled that event for us, uh, uh, the, the Holy Spirit manifesting itself in the tongues of fire distributed over the, the uh, gathering of the disciples, but resting upon each one, them, on one of them individually. And out of that, a, a new community emerges, which is characterized by such things as devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers, uh, which I think point ultimately uh, to worship. The ministry of Jesus then, not only during the days of his flesh, but until the end of the age is a ministry in the power of the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of the living God. Well, that's, that's one important similarity between the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and his uh, ministry from the right hand of, of God. Another similarity between the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and the continuing apostolic ministry is the call to repentance joined to announcement, the announcement of forgiveness of sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In this respect, Jesus carried forward the ministry of John the Baptist, who proclaimed the same message, to repent and have your sins forgiven. John the Baptist, in turn, was, uh, was carrying forward the enduring, and perhaps recovering, if you will, the enduring message of the prophets of the Lord in the Old Testament. Uh, we only need to recall, for example, out of many, many possible examples, Hosea chapter 14. That's the last chapter of the prophet Hosea. It begins this way, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good. To which the Lord replies, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. You may recall that in Luke chapter 5, uh, Jesus calls a tax collector named Levi to be one of his apostles. And Levi immediately throws a, a big party for Jesus and all of his tax collector buddies. Of course, the ever-vigilant scribes and Pharisees see this and they are upset and annoyed and they ask Jesus, why is it, why is it that you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. In the same way, the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts is replete with the call to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, again, if you recall the sermon from last Sunday, Vince uh, pointed out how the very first sermon, Peter's Pentecost sermon, ends with this exhortation to the people who said, you know, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, it, the next episode in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 3, involves another sermon, which comes about through the healing of a lame man uh, through the ministry of Peter and, and John at the temple. 
A crowd immediately gathers at, at this event, and Peter uses the occasion to call the people. He preaches a sermon in which he calls the people to repentance for their compliance in the crucifixion of Jesus, their complicity in this terrible wickedness. He appeals to them, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped away. Wiped away. His message is cut short at that moment by the the temple authorities, uh, but not before Peter is able to get in these last words. God raised up his servant, that is Jesus, and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Well, we all want God to bless us, right? God's going to bless me. In fact, you know, we're, we're the church. We're blessed to be a blessing. What does God's blessing look like? Well, it's, you know, it's shalom. But at the heart of God's plan to bless the world is turn us from our evil ways. And if we ask, you know, why, why does the church in the West seem to struggle? Why is it that, that of uh, all the places in the world that the church isn't growing, uh, it's our place, it's wherever the footprint of Christendom has uh, gone down. Why is that? I think it's primarily because even the church has lost any real sense of the seriousness of sin, or even the reality of sin. We don't we don't really think of ourselves anymore as sinners. We're just, we're just profoundly dysfunctional, right? Um, it, it amuses, well, when I, when I go back to Scotland, I'm struck by the fact that when you read in the papers or in the news about uh, people being arrested or, or being detained by the, the police, it's because of, of various forms of what are called antisocial behavior. There's no more criminality there. There's just people who behave antisocially. So if, if a, uh, a group, if a gang of thugs after a soccer game are drunk and high and, and they get on a train car and trash the car and mug and assault people in the car, they're, you know, they're arrested for antisocial behavior. And we, 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 I think the church partakes of that, that outlook that... Most of our issues, our issues deep down are, are not that, that we are fundamentally uh, twisted and warped and alienated against God and set upon evil, but we're, you know, we're just dysfunctional. We've, you know, we've been brought up poorly. Um, there's some, you know, we haven't had opportunities, and I'm not saying that those things aren't significant things, but there is this loss of salvation is uh, forgiveness. Salvation is being turned from an old way, an evil way, to a new living way. Well, when we recall these two dimensions of the saving mission of Christ, uh, begun during his life on earth, continued uh, from his exalted seat of power at the right hand of God through the ministry of the apostles and the power of the Spirit, these two aspects, the the empowering of the Spirit to the end of delivering people from the ways of sin and death, then I think we understand why the church uh, time and again goes back to the book of Acts, as it were, to get its bearings. I think that's 
that's one of the things we, we want to accomplish during this summer, looking, looking at the book of Acts, is to get our bearings. Uh, it's, a, it's a continuing exercise in, in going back there to what God started and seeing if we can connect the dots in some meaningful way between what we see there and, and what we're up to now. And some time and again during the, the experience of the church, it's, uh, it's harder to connect those dots than others, other times. G.C. Burkhauer, in uh, his book, Faith and Justification, which is one of the five volumes of his uh, work known as Studies in Dogmatics, wrote these words, the gospel does not come coolly, and that means dispassionately, to inform us of a new objective state of affairs. It invades our lives as a call to belief and conversion. I'm going to try to put that up here for us. Get the, there it goes. I want you all to, to see this and reflect on it. The gospel does not come to inform us of a new coolly to inform us of a new objective state of affairs. It invades our lives as a call to belief and conversion, to love and obedience. If the gospel is in the power of the Holy Spirit, it never comes to us just as information. It comes to us as a, a transforming word, as a, a summons that, that is heard and has to be responded to. A call to belief and conversion a call to love and obedience. Perhaps of all the things that keeps drawing the church back to the book of Acts, even these 2,000 years hence, it is the witness to an invasion of human lives by a word that creates a radically new community. Well, to speak of the Lord's saving mission, like Burkauer, as an invasion brings me to a third uh, similarity between the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and his continuing apostolic ministry, namely the emergence of opposition. The gospel comes, the work of the Spirit comes as an invasion, and what is the, what is the normal response to invasions? Resistance. Very few invasions go unresisted. Tyrants and slaveholders do not open their, they don't just throw open their gates to liberators, do they? They're going to protect what, what they consider to be theirs. We've already noted in the Gospels the opposition of the scribes and Pharisees to Jesus' teaching about repentance and pardon. The Gospel story, of course, reaches its culmination in the crucifixion of Jesus, Reminding us that opposition to the Christian movement, opposition to the ministry and mission of Christ, was at its core murderous. Unrelenting, stemming from hearts hardened by pride, blind to their own brokenness and, and strangers to grace. So in the same way that the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees appear early and often to challenge the ministry of Jesus, so also the same forces quickly get organized to repress the new community called into existence by the message that Christ is risen. 
I mentioned uh, in just a few moments ago that the first manifestation of this opposition is in the context of the healing of a lame man and the explanation of that, uh, which was cut short by the temple authorities. The apostles Peter and John, they were arrested and they were, uh, they were held in jail overnight. They were brought to, for a hearing the next day and threatened not to preach any more whatsoever, at least publicly, not to proclaim it as public truth for the rest of the world uh, that Christ was risen and that through him sins are forgiven and the kingdom of God has arrived and that the putting of, of him to death was a, 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 an egregious evil. They aren't to say that anymore. And, and out of that episode, we have some of the more famous sayings in the book of Acts. We must obey God rather than men. That's in the context of the aftermath of this healing and arrest. Uh, and of course, uh, that's often distorted into sort of, you know, well, the church doesn't have to pay any, any attention to the government. Government just minds its own business. We obey God rather than men. Uh, we, we aren't answerable in any, any way to civil authorities. Uh, they were told not to preach the resurrection in, in Jesus. And they, the apostles said, well, the Holy Spirit told us to preach this. So we, that's what we, we have to do that. And we'll take our, you know, you do what you do and, and we'll do what we do. Um, also, uh, there is salvation in no other name under heaven. No other name is given under heaven by which we are to be saved. That's out of this same, same episode. But what I want us to look at uh, this morning is, is not so much the response, how the apostles reply to the authorities when they are questioned and challenged. What I want to look at is how the apostles and the community respond to the threat of opposition. And their response is to gather the community for prayer and we find the account of that in Acts chapter 4. Well, let's read that uh, text, starting at verse 23. When they were released, that's the, Peter and John, they went to their friends, literally they went to their own people, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed is his Messiah. And they're quoting, they're quoting from Psalm 2 there, the opening verses of the second psalm. And they go on uh, in their prayer. And notice how they're, they're telling, they're just telling God a lot of things. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to, do, to heal 
and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In, in the book of Acts, there are 10, 11 speeches by the apostles, mostly by Peter and Paul, uh, one by Stephen, and then there's one in, in the Jerusalem Council where James also speaks. But there are uh, 11 speeches in which we know what the apostles said and, and have an insight into their preaching and teaching. But we also know that the, the apostolic church devoted itself to the prayers, but there are there's very little uh, record of how they prayed. So in that respect, I think this text is a real treasure. And I'd like us to look at this prayer for a few moments as establishing the basic enduring stance of the church when confronted by opposition. I'd like to note in passing just a few practical considerations that that we can take to heart from this prayer that I think encourages us in prayer. Uh, first of all, it is okay in our prayers to tell God things that God already knows and to ask God to do things that, things that God is already doing. Uh, the believers pray that God would take note or God would pay attention to the threats of the authorities. Now, the disciples knew full well that that not a sparrow falls to the ground without the Heavenly Father noticing that. They know that God is always watching over us. God is always paying attention to what's going on with his children. But they pray, God, pay attention to what they're doing to us. So it's, it's still okay to ask God to pay attention, to look at what's going on in the world. He's not offended when we cry out to him and plead with him to be actively involved in our lives, though we know that we know he's actively involved. God wants our relationship with him to be an active rather than a passive relationship. So intercessory prayer is at the heart of a living relationship with God. Likewise, the sovereign Lord knows what is written in the Bible. They start out their prayer by quoting the Bible to God. Here's what you said by your, the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David. They quote the Bible back to God. It's his own inspired word. He knows what's written there. But it's still okay to quote the Bible to God when we pray. He's not offended. In fact, he's pleased. I would say he is pleased that we frame our prayers in the light of what he has revealed to us in his word. After all, how else would we know how to pray in accordance with the will of God if we didn't pray with our Bibles open and, and pray back to God? What he told us is, is his uh, perfect and revealed will. This is how we have confidence in prayer, and it's right and fitting to remember and call God to remember all that he has said and done for us in the past. He hasn't forgotten but our remembering, our mentioning it gives us confidence and assurance and boldness when we pray. So in, in Acts chapter 4, the believers must face uh, 
in the, for the first time in the, the short history of the Christian movement, opposition to the gospel and the fears, the fears that opposition inspire. And we're not thinking here about the, uh, the opposition of those who just disagree with us. We're not thinking about the opposition of, of people who hear the Christian message and say, oh, I don't believe in a resurrection. That sounds like nonsense. It's not, it's not the opposition of people who make fun or taunt, like the, the, the folks on Pentecost morning who said, well, I can tell you what's going on with those Christians. It's just, they weren't called Christians then, the followers of Jesus. They're just drunk. It's not that kind of, it's not that kind of opposition. It is the opposition of authorities who can inflict pain and loss. The church had already seen this firsthand in the experience of Jesus. So they know that the opposition of authorities is no trifling matter. And for most of the time, uh, at least up until the day of Pentecost, they were hiding out anyway. They were afraid of what might befall them in the, in the aftermath of the crucifixion. So their response to oppression, their response to opposition, their response to threats and fears is to pray. This is the biblical pattern for how the church responds to threatening opposition. It lays the matter before God. In their prayer, the believers ground themselves theologically. They address God as sovereign Lord. And in the Pew Bibles, the CSV, it translates it as master, which is the common word in the New Testament for the relationship slaves and masters. Uh, the Greek word is despotis, comes into English as despot. We don't like despots. Uh, that's a negative kind of word in, in English. But... A despot is an absolute ruler, does what he wants. They address, they address God, and it doesn't have that negative connotation in, in the New Testament that we associate it. They, they address God as despotis, despota, pay attention. They've been threatened by earthly authorities for preaching the resurrection, for being obedient to the mandate of the Spirit, and they direct their prayers to the sovereign Lord of all, the maker of heaven and earth. And this is why I think the church in the ancient creeds always begins, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is how the disciples open their prayer in the face of opposition. The church is called to bear witness in a world opposed to the witness. And so the church always begins its confession, always begins its I believe by reminding itself where its true protection and freedom lies. The believers ground their prayers we've seen in, in Holy Scripture in the text of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 begins uh, by acknowledging the reality of the world's opposition to the kingdom of God and the Lord's Messiah. The psalm confidently declares that this opposition is futile will come to nothing because the Lord will uphold the rule of his Messiah and give him final victory. But the disciples understand that because this is in Scripture and it's written down ahead of time, 
that it also is in accordance with the eternal counsel of God. And so by drawing on this psalm in their prayer, the church acknowledges that opposition goes with the territory of following Jesus as the Messiah, and that this is also part of the sovereign plan of God. So they don't, they don't need to fear opposition, because even this opposition itself is not random. It's not apart from God. In fact, it's something that God uses to bring about his own good purposes. It is, everything is all in his hands. And so that's where the church leaves the opposition of earthly authorities in God's hands for God to deal with it in, in whatever way and whatever time seems fit to God. Their prayer focuses on their mission, their call. They pray for courage to keep bearing witness to keep sharing the gospel. Well, it's, it's always a blessing to be able to go back to the book of Acts to get our bearings. As, as Vince mentioned, I think quite memorably last Sunday, that uh, the church would be much, much poorer without the book of Acts. We, our, our theology and understanding of the mission of the church would be greatly impoverished did we not have the book of Acts. But when the church goes back to the book of Acts to get its bearings, as it were, our, we're, we tend to be preoccupied with our, the internal life of the church, what's going on you know, in, our, in our church, uh, focusing on recovering devotion to apostolic teaching, uh, recovering this sort of uh, rampant generosity, recovering uh, fellowship, the communion of saints, the breaking of bread, and re, you know, recovering a dynamic prayer life in the church. But when you get to the place of recovering the dynamics of prayer, looking at the book of Acts, you are brought very quickly to the battleground between the church and the hostility of powerful forces arrayed against the church, and it compels the church to consider its relationship to the powers and governments of this world. So that if we go back to the book of Acts and say, look how they prayed, what should we learn from that? Can we connect the dots or should we be able to connect the dots or how can we reestablish the dots between us and them? It's not long before you realize that the church in the world is, let's say, politically implicated. To confess Christ as Lord in, in this world is to make a political statement. And so the church has to develop in faithfulness uh, what we could call a political theology. You have to be pretty careful addressing this topic 2,000 years hence from the beginning of the Christian movement. A lot has happened in the course of world history and Christianity. But I think we still need to say this without reservation, to guard the church against all idolatries. What we need to say is this, the church is not dependent for the faithful pursuit of its mission on the support of, of friendly governments. The church is not dependent to carry out its mission for the faith, in faithfulness to God upon the support of friendly governments or the friendliness of the governments around us. This is self-evident when we look at where the church is flourishing in the world. 
With only a few exceptions, the church is growing most dynamically where it is officially and often most bitterly opposed. Now, our response is not to celebrate persecution or invite persecution. We should, we should do all in our power to relieve the suffering of our persecuted brothers and sisters. We should advocate for justice and the freedom of worship. But at the same time, we should guard against alliances and entanglements that suggest that the flourishing of the church and the coming of the kingdom depends on the support or the goodwill of earthly governments. There was another time, another significant time in history when the church looked to the book of Acts to get its bearings. Uh, there have been many, but, but one that's important in our tradition is the Protestant Reformation. They looked to the book of Acts and said, you know, our church doesn't look like that. It's really hard to connect the dots between our, our church in the 15th century and, and what we see in the book of Acts. And they took some pretty daring steps. Uh, most, most of the influential leaders of the Protestant Reformation lived as refugees, uh, were, uh, had death sentences hanging on their heads for the most part, and it was because uh, they, they could find refuge in, in places that for a time uh, would tolerate their presence, uh, that they were able to carry on their work. But one of the things that the Reformation churches did in the crafting of their worship services was they, they settled on this custom, which I don't think we need to embrace as a new custom necessarily, but I think which reminds us of our basic stance and that we always do well to recall what the Reformation, early Reformation churches did when they redesigned worship was to always open worship with these words from Psalm 128, verse 8, and I'll close the sermon with this. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Amen. Lord, write these words on our hearts. Give us joy and boldness in our freedom in Christ. Give us confidence in the power of the gospel. Give us gratitude that in Christ our sins are wiped away. We pray in his name. Amen.